everyone. Welcome back to Stars Like Us. I'm your host, Aliza Kelly. And today I am here with Kim Kranz, who is an author and an artist. Um, she is the creator of the archetype Wild Unknown Deck and Guidebook. She's also the author and creator of Blossoms and Bones, Drawing a Life Back Together, um, some incredible works. I am so excited, so thrilled to talk to you. First of all, what is your astrological sign? I'm a Taurus. Taurus. Nice. When is your birthday? May 3rd. May Taurus. So first deck in Taurus, first earth energy, connecting to the present. How did all of this become what it is? How did you become who you are today? Well, a, a deep, long love for questions and creativity of being a student of many, many different types of disciplines and practices and lineages. And sometimes I think of my life, uh, especially when I'm overwhelmed, I think of, I, <laughs> I think of it as like collage making, like taking all these different pieces that have been kind of broken or shattered or lost or forgotten or inaccessible or too scholarly or too, um, you know, like unrecognized or what, whatever those different materials or contents might be. And that my task really is to collage them together into new images and new forms that people right now are naturally attracted to so that the learning can then take place from those portals or doorways. So I think, you know, it's very like beauty oriented in a sense. I'm very much interested in, especially with the new um, graphic memoir, as you mentioned, Blossoms and Bones, it's almost like making a really challenging, dark story beautiful enough that one is willing to go on it and feel like we can be nourished by descending into complex things so that we can be uplifted or or just work through some like some major junk or whatever we have going on, tension, trauma. Yeah. I, I think that it's interesting now knowing that you are a Taurus and thinking about, you know, Taurus is associated with Venus, which is the planet that's love and beauty. And, you know, Venus, like all of the different planets and archetypes, is multidimensional. Um, but at the end of the day, it kind of gets to values. Venus is so associated with like the things that we value. Venus can be cerebral values or it could also be tangible values. But sort of finding, I mean, the practice of finding value, especially in this graphic memoir, um, I think is is one of the recurring themes that you really address is like, you know, how, like, you know, am I shrinking myself? Am I, or how do I expand myself? How can I make all of these things exist simultaneously? When I read this graphic memoir, um, you were, uh, uh, the story that I, and correct me if I'm wrong, of course, but it seems like the story really behind it is like, first, it starts with acknowledgement that there's something wrong. And then the, the exploration is really the book itself. Um, is that, would you say that that's a fair way of framing it? Exactly. Um, in a sense, it's like a DIY punk version of like the um, the first step in any addiction program, which is to say like, holy shit, my life has become unmanageable. And I am too, I hesitate to say this because it can be misunderstood, but I am too small 
just myself to think that I can control and manage it. And so, um, you know, in the case of like the 12 steps, they would then turn to the, the quote, like higher power. And in this case, me being an artist and relying on art and art making my whole life, um, that was the power that I turned to and said like, okay, I'm in this situation with this eating disorder after this divorce and, uh, you know, deep grief around uh, multiple miscarriages. And really the only thing that I felt I could put my full trust in after seeing so many doctors and using so many different methodologies to try to kind of find my way, um, the, the thing that was there for me um, my whole life was creativity. So I kind of put it to the test and the book becomes, uh, is an exploration in that question, like, will creativity carry me through even this dark hour? And um, it's interesting that it it essentially like became a book. That was never the plan, but. Um, so how did that come to be that it it went from being a an internal reflective experience to being something that became uh, public and and available for others to also see and read and appreciate? Well, I thought at first it would be a series of drawings. I thought, well, I can sit down and, you know, there's this phrase in the book called draw the feeling and I can sit down and I'll draw the feeling once a day. And I have a very um, product oriented mind. Like, uh, you know, you could probably explain this in terms of my, my astrological charts, but part of me wants to get lost in the total mystery and, and unknowing. And then there's always this part of me that's like, this would make a great record cover, or this would make a really mm -hmm. cool journal or whatever. So while I was drawing, I just thought, oh, this will be a beautiful series of 30 drawings about, um, you know, compulsive eating and, and, um, shame and body and all like it will just go naturally go into all these topics but i envisioned it on these different pieces of paper like hanging in an art show somewhere someday and and i was at an ashram so the only books i had were the things i had with me and i'd only planned to stay there for a long weekend so when i got there i realized like how deep i was in the throes of the eating disorder and how kind of spun out i was at that time and, um, and it was only when you arrived there that you, cause you knew that there was something amiss, but then it was when you arrived there that you were like, oh, this is even worse than I could have imagined. Yeah. Because I think it goes back to what you're talking about with this idea of values. It's like, you know, I was living in LA at the time. My life for all intents and purposes looked like really successful and wonderful and just, you know, going along and shopping at all the, um, expensive health food stores and doing my thing. <laughs> it was like, you know, crazy making for someone that's like, feels themselves slipping towards eating disorder. It's like not the for place sure. you want to live by. No, uh, no. And LA is definitely not a city uh, where if you're sort of teetering on that. So that goes back to values. Like what are my, what is success and what does a, a, a full generous life look like? And in from an image of me on Instagram, it would have looked like that I had achieved it. However, the backstory was like pretty brutal and totally conflicting of that image. And when I got to the ashram, I realized like, oh man, none of the things I truly value in my life am I kind of aimed towards or do I have on, on my, in my day-to-day -day life, which is like spaciousness, grace, 
service, beauty, um, you know, reflection, contribution to the, the larger picture. And, and so I felt like, oh my God, how am I like in my late thirties and living in an ashram with like a tiny single bed and like the women's wing, you know, like this old building from the freaking 1960s. It was so not the, what I envisioned my whole life. And then from that, I was able to kind of like reestablish what I truly value, which is, um, it goes through some of these different lists in the book is like contemplating like mercy and tenderness and, and, friendship and humor and walks in nature. These things that I just wasn't allowing myself because my internal voice was so harsh and so judgmental. And had you, how, how did it, um, how did you even settle on the ashram in the first place? Is that some, is that a place that you had previously retreated to? Yeah, I had been going there on and off for different teacher trainings for almost 10 years. So it's the place that I've always held in the back of my mind as like home if shit gets really crazy or, and I always imagined I would live there at some point. So it was kind of the natural place for me to go. And um, what started off as a long weekend turned into six months that I lived there in total. And finally I was ready to leave last fall. And I, I don't live too far from there now. It's just outside of New York city. So in the process of reading, um, this book, something that I found was uh, this counting down that you were doing throughout it mm. um, that was really triggering. And I say that sort of just for lack of a better word at this moment, because I think it's more complex than that. Like it mirrored a lot of the sort of internal clocks that I feel like we have knowingly and unknowingly. You know, I when I work with younger clients who are in their like early 20s and their mid 20s pre Saturn return clients and like I feel their stress of I'm supposed to have like Forbes 30 under 30 myself you know like I feel the clock ticking to get to where I thought I was supposed to be successful or I feel the clock ticking to how much more time I have left or just I feel the clock ticking to my mortality or to my loved one's mortality and as you start to prepare to leave and to sort of allow this chapter of your life to come to a to a close, there's like this push and pull of like, am I resolved? Like, it's like, do I like, am I really in the state of being ready to um, go to the next level? Like, have I done anything at all? Like, has this been productive? Like, have I been wasting my fucking time? Mm -hmm. And I think that that was one of the really poignant conversations that you were having internally and then reflected in the illustrations um, within the book, because it's something that, you know, this this constant countdown is, I think, something that so many of us feel like whether we're like also counting down to like reach a, a diet goal or reach like a monetary goal, like we're always anticipating something. So feeling as a reader, like I know that I know that the pages are getting less of this book. Like you're counting down, I'm counting down. Like we know that there's going to be an end. Um, but the process of that is anxiety inducing in and of itself. Um, and I just found that to be like a very, very interesting and contemplative metaphor for so much of so many of the things that we as like a 
you know, people living in this very capitalist structure um, are facing constantly. What you're talking about is so big. It's such a big underlying, and it's hard to say it's even underlying because it's so present, but it's constantly there, that, that sense of lack of time or measure of time and where we should be by certain points. And um, it, it's funny, even this morning I was doing um, a practice because I found myself in this really like dualistic place of wanting to know what's going to happen this fall. Am I going to be living here or there? Which one, either or. And when I sat with it and sat with it, it's funny, the phrase that came up was, this is a misunderstanding of time. Mm. And it's almost like I could apply that answer that that came like to so many things in my life because I, I mean, being like goal oriented and, you know, you could easily put me in the type A category. There's that, there's that sense that this has to happen when I see it, how I see it, why I see it for all these reasons. And it's really tricky territory, especially like in the um, new agey world around the language of manifesting and all of that, like, because we're so determined that we know what we need. And yet we can only envision that from the place that we're in at that time. So it's like my vision from the, for this fall and what I think would be quote unquote best for me in my life is coming from from what I can see now. It's not coming from right. the eternal space. I mean, what you're talking about with time is also like learning about the planets is so healthy in this way because we start to stretch our sense of like timelessness and um, have the eternal, those e big eternal forces during these little day-to-day -day tasks of our life. And if we can somehow like get better at knowing those two can coexist, I feel like that is the balm that helps me deal with a lot of the anxiety you're talking about. Yeah, I I think that, I mean, I guess like looping that also with this amazing work of the wild unknown, the archetypes deck and guidebook that you have that is, you know, just has spoken to so many people. The iconography is so beautiful. It is it is such a an energetically charged product and like piece of uh, metaphysical ephemera. Um, <laughs> but then like your eating disorder and that process, if I'm right in the timeline came after that, right? Yeah. So it's like, you know, something like this through the lens of what we see societally as success would say like Kim was, is really successful. Like Kim made something that has you know, created a legacy for herself and created like something that people love and want to purchase and has lasting power that will transcend your lifetime. Right. So like that is so much of like how we determine success and how we leave our mark. But then it's like you're still alive. Right. And even though you still might be reaping whatever like financial rewards or press opportunities or whatever it is, it's like you also are still moving and things are still happening and you're still now you're having like new traumas come up that hadn't even surfaced prior to that with new fails of relationships, et cetera. So it's like, but we don't as a society want to know any of that. <laughs> you know, like we just want Kim to be the success story embedded in this work. And that's why I think that this work, <laughs> this I'm holding all of these books up. People can't say, but 
that's why I think that this memoir is so was so powerful, I think, to as a reminder of like, hey, like there's also, you know, somebody keeps living even after they make something really cool. And there is also like fallout that could happen from that, too. Exactly. And this type of conversation is the type of conversation, just what you're talking about right here is people don't want to go there. They, they don't want to talk about these, the complexities of then what if you do have a successful work and then what if, um, certain things happen because of that, that, that increase the pressure that person puts on themselves. I mean, um, makes me think of two things. One is there's a scene in the book where there's a graveyard, um, that the skeleton arrives at that has all the graves of the great artists that have overdosed and committed suicide. And when I drew that page, it came out of nowhere and it still gives me chills to think about it because that was the page that had to be edited the most because I kept finding more and more artists um, who have committed suicide or overdose. And even in the making of the book, one of my favorite songwriters, um, a lead guitarist of the Silver Jews and poet David Berman committed suicide. So I was like, you know, last day of, uh, before it went to press, like, oh my God, we have to add another grave. And, and it's hard to hold space to contemplate these things, but it's so important that our culture, if we want to celebrate, um, you know, creativity and the arts and, and all of these things, I mean, you're in celebrity culture, so you, you, you get it. Then we also have to have some sort of support system in place to sustain, um, you know, the, the humanness and not just want the, the surface that we see. And then, um, the second point I just want to make while we're on this topic, cause it's such an important one is, um, that's why I felt obligated to put this book out and, uh, you know, allowing people to see it's not just the successful tarot deck and the archetype deck and, whoa, she's just like makes all this stuff all the time for people to see like, and underneath that, there's also a complex story around um, pressure and me. M- meanwhile, people are projecting onto me and my success. And I'm just looking at my Instagram feed and seeing all these moms, all these moms with their kids mm-hmm. and and families. And then I'm projecting onto them. So we're all projecting lack back and forth in this like infinity mirror and um, man, it's so, it's so, um, I don't know how we got tricked into doing that with each other. So I feel like I'm, I'm grateful to be here and having this conversation with you because that helps us undo some of that like infinity mirror loop that we get stuck in. Yeah, I think that that is, ex- I, it's interesting that you should use that particular metaphor because that's exactly like when I think of somebody who, you know, especially with Instagram, like, you know, when we follow someone and we are then find ourselves, you know, being envious of what they have or feeling like we don't have something. It's like we just they just became the arc. Speaking of archetypes, they're the archetype then of the thing that we don't have. And to that person, they're someone else is their archetype of what they don't have. So everyone is constantly playing this game of catch up of like, let me prove like everyone is just constantly being triggered and triggering someone else. And that is how like the whole platform lives. I mean, and if we think about it, and I, I, I always love to think about the history of like how something came to be. 
like Mark Zuckerberg, like wanted to get laid by women who did not want to sleep with him. You know, he wanted to under he wanted to like figure out how to get to his fellow classmates. Um, so he created a property like Facebook that allowed him to sort of get better access to these women. And it came from so the origins of like this type of social media world that we're in came from this place of like lusting after someone or like desiring something and like envying it and wanting something unattainable. And that ethos, no matter how far away we are from Mark and his sophomore dorm, like that's still that's what it was. You know, it was built on that. And a bit of like trickery. There's a trickster nature in there too, which is speaking of archetypes. Well, like then we're all in this trickery together. And it's like, sometimes I just feel like, (laughs) when are we all going to just stop? Um, Because that trick is really painful and we don't realize that we're doing it with each other, for each other, by each other, um, and in bearing witness to each other and doing it. So it's really, it has us, um, it has us stuck in a loop for sure. I, I think so. something that's also really interesting in, in terms of thinking about like having created works that live within the mystical space is then being perceived or the expectation that then you can have all the answers, all, like that you are somehow this like omniscient creator who knows all of the things. And to me, also, like, especially when we think of eating disorders in astrology, it's lunar. Do you know what your moon sign is, by the way? I'm Aries rising and Sagittarius moon. So the, that Sag moon is interesting to think about. And, you know, depending on where it falls, if it's in your eighth, if it's in your ninth, if it's in your tenth. But it's we see eating disorders as lunar issues because the moon represents the way we nurture ourselves with you know, the 27 club, for instance, with, you know, all of these amazingly successful people who, who leave at 27, a lot of the time that's misattributed to Saturn return. But really, it has to do with the progressed lunar return, which is when your moon comes back around and is basically like, how are you taking care of yourself? Mm. And if you haven't, if you don't have, and oftentimes, it's, you know, not even our fault, like if we just don't have a cultivated sense of being able to nurture, then we over nurture through self-destruction. Yeah. And to for all of these, you know, to have created works that live in the spiritual and mystical space. And then I would imagine for the pressure of being like, well, what are the answers? How do you figure like what is spirituality? And it's like you're pushing out so much. But then lunar on the inside is like, well, I just I'm just like a shell of who I am. I can't even I have to just shrink because I'm doing all of this external, but I don't I'm not I can't take care of the internal. It makes a lot of sense that within that context, that of course you're going to start to deny the lunar part of you, you know? Yeah. And it it parallels with the book image-wise in an interesting way too, because the main character is this like skeletal figure that's very like unformed at the beginning. And as the book carries on, she starts to develop like she gets eyelashes and she start her body starts to like become more formed and her eyes are more clear and then towards the end of the book it's like it's the moon that she um meets at at psychic springs when she has this realization 
um, the remedy is truth and saying like, I, I'm, this is what I've been going through. And, um, I'll start with my own truth as a way to like acknowledge where I am. Um, but the moon at the, towards the end of that book, like really becomes that a kind of ally presence. And the moon has to be when it comes to taking care of ourselves and nurturing ourselves and feeding ourselves, that is our connection to the moon, our internal moon, the philosophical moon, the physical moon, like that's where it all comes down to is what, how can you give yourself the motherly maternal love um, that you deserve, regardless of what, who your mother is, you know, what your relationship with the maternal figure is, like, how do you mother yourself? And I know that obviously a lot of the impetus for this was also miscarriages and your relationship with motherhood and the the sorrow that you had ex- ex- sort of moving through that space too. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's like, these were, this is why the archetypes are so powerful. And it's such a good example. Again and again, I'm reminded like how complex the, the mother archetype is. And when people come to the decks that I make and they want to know what the cards mean, I'm, I'm just like, we can talk about what the cards mean, but like, it's a, it's an eternal complex, uh, contradictory structure that we're working with here. That's so, so big and vast that I feel like I could study the mother archetype my whole life and be on my, you know, dying breath still utter, utter <laughs> the mantra ma, you know, because I was just thinking of that mantra this morning, ma, ma, and it implies all, all that you're talking about the kind of universal big the mother of the mother at the same time you could see that energy ma in like a mother cat licking her kitten like on the sidewalk or someone on instagram like it's it comes in so many different iterations and and it also comes in um one of the figures in the book that's very haunting is miss miscarriage and um it comes in those forms too that that the, the complexity of the mother story I don't know. I found myself almost like you're suggesting, like the nourishment for me started to come from actually interacting with those images of the mother and with the grief and with the drawings in a way that I like honored them more than I was trying to hide them and suppress them. And like, I'm so fucked up. The next fertility doctor I go to, I'm not going to tell them how many times I've been pregnant. Like, I'm just going to start from scratch and like, hope it works, you know, that kind of thing, as opposed to allowing the story to be seen and heard and know that I am one of many stories of the complexity of motherhood and birth, death and things we think we can control. Yeah. And I think also sort of like the, um, I, I think that there is also a, when it comes to like the mother archetype and the complexities of the mother archetype, like we forget like the angry mother too, you know, like the vengeful mother, the mother that also is like drowns her children mother, but like, that's also mother, you know, that's also a type of mother. And it is a very real mother that many of us have growing up, you know, a a jealous mother, an angry mother. Exactly. Um, And those live within us within that archetype structure as well. There's the postpartum depression mother. And what are you going to do with that after? 
I mean, even for me, I've been projecting all this stuff onto like, oh my God, if I could ever become a mother and then imagine if I am and then I have resentment, postpartum depression and like, what the fuck did I do? I've been (laughs) been talking about this for 15 years and now I want to, you know, now I just want to be solo again. Right. I have been in the process of writing and completing my my manuscript that I'm working on now. I've been listening and on Audible and reading all different types of books from different types of, well, honestly, from a lot of different types of best-selling authors and to see sort of like how they format and how they structure it. And a lot of authors who are sort of rooted in Christianity, as it as it turns out, I didn't know that. Like I, you know, I didn't know that half of these self-help books are at start talking about Jesus in page 16. Mm. But I a lot of them are like me, like imagine me, a mom, like five kids running a successful business, like how crazy, like I'm can't even, I'm giving them Lunchables, like I can't even make them organic food anymore. And it's like, like what kind, like this is not the same mother as somebody who's like working eight jobs and trying to, you know, keep a house together when she doesn't have a partner and is, doesn't know when she's going to be able to like how get her kids clothes, you know, like this is not the same type of mother. And like, I understand that mother situ like, you know, everyone is living their own reality and everyone has their own struggles. And I try to be really conscious and cognizant of the fact that like when I talk to someone who's really, really privileged, that their privilege and their moment doesn't feel like privilege. It feels like hardship. But I think that we also need to just sort of like see sort of just the spectrum of like how broad the experience of being a mother is, of being successful is, of like having pain is, of like, and and that's something that Instagram and like social media does a really bad job at because we follow people specifically who sort of like mirror or mock our own existence. And then we forget that there's like all of these other variants and deviations of what we're living. And I guess the point is, is that motherhood to me might mean something different than motherhood to you, which is going to mean something different to motherhood for someone like 30 blocks north of where I am now. And we can all be using the same language for it, but have such different imagery in our heads. And I think that that's one of the reasons that illustrations and art is so sometimes is so much more effective than just words alone. Because it actually allows us to be like, this is what I think that mother, that the mother, you know, the life death cycle looks like from my vision. Like, does this look like what it looks like from your vision? And it opens up conversations about things that are otherwise sort of too, you know, shared language, but not shared experience. Exactly. Art is so generous like that. It's, um, it's diverse in its nature. Like it, it what what we all see in it is going to be so diverse because of what you're talking about but it's not problematic in the same way that that language can be and i really felt that when i was at the ashram you know i was in an incredibly privileged position to be able to like even know about an ashram be able to have the lifestyle where I could take time off and go there and work from there when I needed to, but the flexibility around my schedule, I felt like I had stacked at, at my back tool after tool after tool. 
you know, 10, 12 years of meditation, breath practice, yoga practice, like, like, like I'm saying, like finances set up, flexibility with my life, all these things. And I was absolutely debilitated by the eating disorder. I felt like I couldn't go one more day. And sometimes when I felt my most defeated by this book and like, what the fuck am I making? I cannot believe I'm writing this. It's so humiliating and not even going to quote unquote work and all these things. I would just think like, imagine those that are half your age. There's like a 17 year old somewhere. There's someone like with a in a in an abusive relationship that's grappling with this there's someone that would never be able to go on a weekend retreat let alone like end up being in an ashram for 6 months there's someone who doesn't know a single breath practice and it's like if i can be here tolerate my own discomfort and just hold on to the fucking pen and keep drawing that is my job and it's my job to you know because of that privilege show like show the fuck up like and and create this thing, even though it's like it was mortifying <laughs> for right, all intents right. and purposes. And and a lot of people that I talked to in, in the industry were like, "Why are you making this? It's like totally off topic from your work." You know, like, "Whoa, you're really leaping out here." Thankfully, my agent was like by my side the whole time and just believed in it and still does. I think it's just it it's important to keep that broad picture of like it's not just me going through this. If I'm going through this and it's one of my one of my teachers says the definition of something you can tell if something is archetypal if it's overwhelming mm-hmm. if something's overwhelming it is archetypal so i was like well eating disorders this is archetypal this idea of like nourishment and starvation and um scarcity and so people are experiencing it all over the world right at this very very moment and i need to be able to show up in my privilegedness right for yeah. For the growth of all. and Right. And I think especially because you are in the position where you can talk about it, it's so vital to do so because people are not going to n- impose that narrative on you otherwise. You know, yeah. they're going to say you're successful, you're great, Erewhon, Los Angeles. And then they're not going or they're going to refuse or deny your humanity of your suffering, you know? And that's a constant temptation. Even in showing up for this podcast today, I'm like, well, yeah, but it's easier to just say like, I'm over that. And that was a phase I went through and everything's just fine now. That temptation to get back to that narrative of the non-human, the non-us together going through the complexity is right there for the taking. And as soon as that happens, we become separate and we start perceiving this like really really harmful separateness of like, they do this, I do that. I'm not like them. This isn't, you know, I'm not helpful here. I need to shut up and never talk about this. And it's almost like thinking about the term right now because of Black Black Lives Matter, we're getting this term anti-racist is getting way more um, play. Like it's becoming a term that people are actually saying instead of just like, oh, I'm not racist. That's not me. That's that's them. But saying like, I am actually anti that as an act, as a kind of verb action. And so I feel that way about like um, being actively 
engaged with non-separateness. <laughs> and that it's so easy to slip into it unconsciously. That's the default that we slip into that separateness and judgment. A few years ago, when my first book came out and I was doing, um, you know, like podcast press for it. And actually, you know, interestingly, I added another, I realized another variable just a few months ago to this, which I'll share at the end of it. But I found myself um, becoming increasingly disassociative. And I already struggle with disassociation. I've always struggled with it. You know, it's the way that I, um, you know, it's like a lot of the way my PTSD has manifested was through like just disassociate, not listen, not be there, not feel it. But I was not doing something. This was not supposed to be triggering, right? This was not supposed to be mental health stuff. This was supposed to be me talking about my book. <laughs> and like every time I was doing these podcasts, it was like I would leave the studio and I couldn't, I honestly could not hold enough space for all of me to exist. And I started to realize that part of it was trying to make my, to tell like my story within this very truncated, you know, how do I make this sound poppy and interesting and fun and like digestible in this really like, you know, whatever window I had five minutes, 10 minutes in order for us to then, you know, talk about the book and all of this. And the more and more I did that, the more and more I started to feel like I was having no, like I had no structure hmm. and I was losing my grasp of like, what even is, what even is my reality? And like, now it's like I've lived every day I've been alive is a day I've been alive. That's a lot of days to be alive. It's a lot of things to happen. And here I am trying to like condense all of that into something so pithy. Um, I also very recently, actually just as recently as February, the last time I was in Los Angeles, realized that I think that Los Angeles itself is part of that for me. And it was if I had been doing those podcasts in New York, where I'm from, maybe it would not have been as disassociative for me. But being in LA and doing just sort of podcast, 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 podcast was like making me very worried, you know, like, uh, like, I was keeping an eye on it, because I was getting concerned about how deeply it was getting. And then from that, I came back to New York, and I started thinking, I need to be able, I, I can't, I can't make this small anymore. You know, like, I need I understand that there's going to be certain times when I need to just have a soundbite or certain moments where I can just sort of say one thing about my trajectory. But at large, I can't like reduce it because the when I'm reductive to my own narrative, it starts to feel inauthentic and it's also not true to what I've experienced. And I feel like it's painting a, the wrong picture of what I have lived not just for others, but for myself. So it became something where it was like a, a mission to be, to, to give myself enough space to have everything, even if it's confusing and there's some things that feel like the timeline is like, how does that work? Like it just needs to all be out there because that's the only way it can be true. And that's the only way I'm going to be able to hold space being where I am at any moment, you know? What a powerful decision. Yeah, but it was like survival, you know, it was like kind of like I started to feel that like a losing grasp of reality, you know, I'm so interested in that, that you recognize that. And, and there's, I mean, I studied uh, 
depth psychology and the humanities at Pacifica. I just finished uh, studying there. I wrote my last paper while in quarantine. And one of mm-hmm. one of Jung's um, approaches to the pairs of opposites is just hold the tension, hold the tension, hold the tension, the discomfort of the tension like that. Instead of getting reductive and saying, no, it's this or it's that. And I'm this simple person. I'm just this sound bite. I'm, I, you know, I'm Kim Grimes. I made a tarot deck. That's me. Like, and that is such a small percentage of a percentage of me. <laughs> and so when I reiterate that that's me, like all those other parts of me get distraught, shattered, resentful, like they, and they, they can right. wreak havoc on the psyche. And soon, unless we come to a place where we can hold that complexity and allow it to be like a fucking mess, like where we don't know what's going on, but we have certain threads that we can rely on and that we can find our way through. I feel like that, that shattering where we think we become just one shard of the shatter. It's just so painful. Um, I'm just like inspired to hear you speak about it. So clearly and it's just obvious even by your tone like I don't know if we can somehow all get to this place where we can hold the complexity of our lives and each other and unfortunately algorithms are not structured around the complexity (laughs) they're structured around like pointing us accurately to the exact ads that will further our own self-consciousness and and pain I mean, the ads now yes. like that I get on Insta are just, it, it's like, oh, you think you know you're the perfect diet for you? Here's like 16 meal delivery services, all with like different promises that you can get. And I'm like, fuck. Right. <laughs> right. When we think, I guess, even looping this back to like the moon and the maternal and I I'm thinking so much about, you know, like this moment astrologically and, you know, 2020 and the being just the all living up to the hype of what it is and like the structures and when we get to this the capricorn saturn energy in the sky as we have now it's like we have not you know you're the first you're taurus you're the first earth sign i like to think of taurus as sort of like i love candles and then virgo (laughs) the second one is like what color candle do you like do you like scented candles do you like yankee candles do you like seven day candles and then capricorn is like let's make a candle factory because people fucking love candles. And that's like brilliant and great. But when we get that energy, when that energy has too much power, it's when we are doing, you know, it's when we're industrializing everything. And we are just, and there's a reason that cancer, which represents the, you know, the mother and is associated with the moon and Capricorn, which is Saturn and the father are opposites. You know, there's a reason that that access exists where we have the nature and like the the nurture and the way that we are sensitive with ourselves and then we have the industrialization and the systems and like the let's drill down and get the oil and use that for energy you know there's different ways to pull energy and when those go when when all of the energy starts to like slide towards the industrialization, the colonialization, the marketing, the profiting, the capitalism. It's like we're we no longer are seeing the mother and the nature and the maternal space as being profitable, you know? So we no longer see that as value. So we just dismiss it. 
So like we starve ourselves, you know, we're literally starving the kindness and the nurture because all of it is just dropping in towards like the industry. Yeah, it's all branded. Yeah. And we see that like, you know, it's it's so hard to balance that on a macro level. It's so hard to balance that on an individual level and a micro level. Um, and, you know, how can we continue to be financially successful, like make things that are good, make things people want while also being like, I'm not only just the contracts I sign, you know, I'm also a person who needs so like softness and kindness and wholeness and like a, a shoulder to cry on and my own shoulder, you know, yeah. <laughs> like I need all of that, too. It makes me just think of um, like the image of like a plum or something. And we've become even so branded around all food that we start to think of a plum as like, is it keto or non-keto? Is it macro? Like what's <laughs> a, and, and just actually holding and being in touch with like the plumness of it and eating that and as a sensual experience, it's like, that's the kind of nurturance that I was and still am like so in need of because I can start to think a plum is like a, a thing I select on my phone when I'm doing some sort of meal planning or like, cal you know, a calorie counting app. It's like, no, it's like a, it's, it comes from a tree and a blossom. The blossom becomes, you know, like it's yeah. so rich, like just image wise and color wise and texture wise, the formation of that thing that we all get to like eat and ingest and then digest is like, it's so freaking beautiful. You're right. It's a result of like the, the technological, like the, the, that masculine, like drive to, um, compete and conquer profit, whatever that machinery is that like leads towards that end of the spectrum is, um, it's, it's become like an un unconscious decision. It's not like we choose to go there day to day. We wake up in that paradigm possibly. And then we have to like consciously steer back in the other direction and try to get yes. to the simplicity and generosity of the breath of the plum of friendship, of the sunshine, like, and it's active. It is at this point has to be active work because it's not, it's not the norm of the flow right no. now. No. And that is, you know, if we look at just the astrology, there's, you know, there's nothing in cancer, you know, everything is in Capricorn. We as a society need more of the, like, just the admiration for the natural, the beauty, the emotions, the sensitivity, and without trying to monetize. Like, <laughs> it just has to be without it being like, this is kind of cool. Like, what if I put a snazzy sticker on this and sold it? You know, like, it just kind of has to be what it is without it being something that we can profit. And that is harder for us now um, than it is to just enjoy the beauty of something. Mm. And it's it's work, you know, it's to I even think about the bananas that are in my on top of my refrigerator next to my microwave getting radiated right now. And like bananas, like what a cool fucking thing, <laughs> you know, like bananas are so I mean, they have their like armored fruit and I have never have I ever seen a real banana tree? 
I don't know. I really don't know. I can't. I don't know if I've ever seen bananas in the wild, but I see bananas sitting next to my microwave all the all day long. You know, <laughs> I was going to use the banana instead of the plum, but it seemed. Oh, like, really? Yeah, <laughs> but it seemed phallic and random. And I was like, I'm going to go with the plum at the last minute. <laughs> <laughs> well, the bananas, I mean, the banana is is they're they're so strong, like the they're, you know, the with those hard shells. But even like, have you ever looked at the pictures of fruit before it was made more attractive like the real fruit before it, it, they've become sort of these like aesthetic things they're so like um swollen and like oblong and the shapes are all distorted and they don't look anything like the the genetically modified fruit that we eat today i mean um, if anything is a is an analogy that's it it's like that, yeah. that uniqueness <laughs> And that messiness of the individual life and the individual, like you could call it whatever, destiny, dharma, all those things, like it gets homogenized into this shape. And then then now we have an emoji for the banana. So we really think we know like what the symbol of the (laughs) banana is. And um, it's fine and fun, but it can be problematic if we don't start to realize like that's actually not the emoji of a banana is not the banana. (laughs) Right, right. You know, like when we think about memes, it's that's derives from memetics, you know, it's from the imprint of an imprint of an imprint. It's like mimesis, you know, Mm. it's like something that just keeps being manipulated and like gets so far from the origin of it that the the memetic is like something that lives completely independently from what its core is. That's amazing. And that's but that's our old, whole world now. You know what that know? is? That's bananas. <laughs> ah, yes. <laughs> did it. We did it. <laughs> well, that is our that's a, that is a perfect moment to ask where we can find you, where we can throw you some bananas. <laughs> um, you can find me on Instagram. Um, the Wild Unknown has its own feed. Um and then I have my own personal feed, which is Kim Kranz, uh, Kim underscore Kranz. And I'm not on there a lot, actually, because of some of the complexities we're talking about here. But <laughs> but I do. Um, I am on there sometimes. And then also you can go to KimKranz.com and see different places and teaching workshops, creativity workshops and um, different things throughout the year. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. This was a really lovely conversation. It was amazing. Thanks. <laughs> have a great day. You too. 